Thank you for being here, Dan. Another episode of DTC Pod. We have Blaine from OmniPanel and Dan from a Snow Agency. So Snow Agency is a full service agency that for brands that want to grow, right? So what does full service mean and what is the difference between, you know, a traditional marketing agency? How far does full service go? So we're full service in the aspect that we can handle anything from a brand that needs anything in today's digital landscape from A to Z. And we're also, so we can handle everything in the marketing aspects from content creation to ad management, to retention marketing, web design, funnel design, influencer marketing, et cetera. But if a brand only needs one specific thing, we can also do that. So we're a la carte in that aspect. And our team is broken up into focusing on each specific thing. So our, ranging from our media buyers, creative strategists, to our email and SMS marketing team, everyone has a specific focus. And that's what allows us to offer either a la carte or full service offerings. Because what we found, and it's where what brands now need and what they prefer doing these days, is they don't want to hire five different companies to do, you know, one company to do email, one company to do paid, one company to do creative. It just adds to the management on their team a lot because they're communicating with so many different people. So what we found is that these days, brands want to only work with one company to handle everything. And that's just where the landscape is going and what we found that we needed to adapt to as well. I guess, you know, my brain instantly goes to, so if you can help them on one specific area, does that affect your success in how they're doing the other areas? Is there a scenario in which, you know, well, they're like, we don't need creative. We just need the performance. And you're like, well, your creative isn't where it should be. How do you guys typically handle that in that scenario? I would definitely say, yeah, I mean, the client and everyone was asking me, like, what are the clients that don't do well? It's the one, you know, specifically creative and the ones who aren't willing to invest or allow us to manage that. So, uh, but that being said, some clients, so we do all of the creative editing, iteration, ideation. So if clients give us the raw content, we take it from there. But it's a client who aren't able to source that raw content in a consistent manner that are the ones that tend to struggle. So that's when it definitely does get affected. But those are, I would say, are more on the minority, but it definitely does happen. I would say other things are, you know, if we're managing email and SMS marketing, that's more reliant on traffic, aka doing all the paid for performance. Because email, you can only drive so, you can only send it to it's a finite amount of people in your email list. That's obviously growing as the more money you spend typically on ads. And then if we're doing ad management, someone else is doing email. The more we scale, obviously email typically tends to scale along with, alongside that. But usually for, for ad management, which is what we tend to focus on, it's really mainly reliant on the, on the creatives we have at our disposal and how quickly the client's able to move on that. I love it because, you know, I was actually talking recently with an agency that helps do like our emails. And then I'm like, actually, but can I, you're so good at copy. Can I also use you for all this copy? No, we only do copy emails. So I'm like, all right, I guess now I need a copywriter. And even for this podcast, like I have the audio editor and I'm like, well, I wish you guys could do the video too, because now I have to communicate with like four different people. And so what I try to do is like have them refer, but it's not as, as fluent as it would be in this scenario. So that's awesome. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, like, how did you start the agency? Like, what was there before that? Yeah, so I've been in the kind of like social slash advertising industry for almost a, coming up on a, a, a decade, nine years now, I guess, since I was in college. So I got started growing the large kind of like people call it meme, theme pages, whatever on social media. I started on Twitter learn how to grow a following, grow a community, understand how content works on social media. 
then learn how to monetize it. So I was doing at first just pay-per-click. So I was, you know, various affiliate marketing and, and different kind of content blogs paying me for just the clicks I sent. Then I learned how to create my own content blogs and learned how to monetize those, how to send traffic to them, then got into apps. So I had a few apps, games, I had a, a music streaming app, few, a few things like that. Then I got into affiliate marketing, launched, then I actually launched my own affiliate network that was specific to influencers and theme pages, started out on Twitter, then moved to Instagram. My senior year of college, we had over 3,000 people using the platform. So it grew to be quite large pretty quickly. And then once I was on the, once because I was able to see how essentially every type of influencer and theme page, meme page, whatever, was sending traffic, what creatives they were using, what demographics they were using, obviously I was forming relationships with them. So it allowed us, number one, I had a team of people that were buying traffic for our own offers. Mm -hmm. And then I also leveraged that to, because the other thing that was annoying at the time was we were always dependent on the advertisers on our platform. And there could be an offer that was blowing up, generating tens of thousands of dollars of revenue a day, but the advertisers might not have the budget to continue going or they're not the inventory or so many different things. So we were always on relying on them and we were completely at, at their whim, essentially. And the pricing was like adjusting yeah, based and on every, that. Exactly. And their offers were always changing, et cetera. So I really wanted to be able to own the offer end to end and to build something that had longevity, which is what inspired me to then launch my own e-commerce brands. So that's why I started launching my own brands and uh, started with a jewelry company that was just doing just, you know, shout outs, stuff like that, learn how to build a following. Then my first brand that really gained traction was a company called Goat Case. That was in 2016. We did $6 million in revenue our first six months and we were doing fulfillment and everything in-house, terrible idea. Essentially leveraging the same team, infrastructure, everything. We started launching more brands with the, with the same exact kind of go-to-market strategy. Then we launched a, a shapewear brand after that called Perfect Sculpt. First year we did $22 million in revenue. And then we just kept doing that. Eventually sold the brands in 2019. Then we had a playbook on how to launch, scale, and grow brands. So that's how we got into the agency. Dan, one question I had for you. Let's. I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit further. Um, you know, before you started, whether it was building apps or making money off affiliate traffic, growing audiences, et cetera. So why don't you walk me through a little bit of like where you were at, like in college, for example, and what were you thinking about? Um, you know, job prospects, and how did you get started? taking your on your first initiative of like, hey, there's actually something that I wanted to create for myself instead of, you know, going and taking on a traditional job, for example. So a lot of what I described, not a lot, the, from the launching the social media pages up to the affiliate network, sure. that was all in college. So I got started during winter break of my sophomore year into December 2012. And then the platform's like peak was my was May, the month I graduated college. Mm -hmm. I think we broke a million dollars that month wow. in revenue. One question I would have, because I'm sure a lot of the listeners now might be in college thinking about launching one of their own brands. Like, you know, what was it you were studying in college? How did the stuff you were doing on the marketing and growth side, how did that line up with it? Was it like an extracurricular? How did you justify spending your time on doing something yeah. like that? What was your viewpoint back then? So I was a biology major. I was actually going to school to be a dentist. I always knew that 
I wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's what drove me and that was interesting and, and doing new projects, stuff like that. Obviously, you know, as, as a 19-year-old kid, I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And the online landscape was nothing like it, it was today. Right now, there's, you know, there's people, there's so much information you can find out there and it's so accessible. There's communities and all this stuff going on. Back when I was in, you know, sophomore year in college, I had no idea you could even make money online. I had no idea that was even a thing. So it's a lot different than it is today. But what inspired me at the time was just a conversation. My friend was telling me, you know, he was making $45 a week on his phone. I didn't get it. I couldn't get a job because I was focused on my studies and mm-hmm. still have, trying to have some sort of social life. At first, that's just what inspired me. I was like, oh, I can, make, I can get some money to go to the bars on the weekends. But what allowed me to really gain motivation was really, I, I became passionate about it. Passionate about being able to grow a following, being able to engage with other people in this community, being able to learn all this new information that was solely reliant on me building something. And to be able to do that digitally while I didn't necessarily, didn't need my physical presence to you know go in and work, so to speak. I could do it on the golf course, on the beach, and in class even. So I just really enjoyed it and got passionate about it. And that's what inspired me to you know, work, quote unquote, work 12 plus hours a day because I just enjoy doing it. That's what got me started, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think what's really interesting about that trajectory is it's something like I experienced myself, Ramon, I'm sure, you know, you have too. But I think step one is understanding like, oh, there's a product out there that can be built. And then you start selling it, whether it's a physical product or a digital experience. So I know you mentioned you started building apps and games, et cetera. And, and then you moved into, you know, something in the D2C space and then something in the marketing agency space. And what strikes me about that is like, whether a customer experience or whatever, whether it's a physical product, whether it's a digital product, you know, there's so many of the same things apply to it, whether it's building, like you said, building community, um, you know, being able to speak clearly to your audience, provide value in whatever service it is you're providing and scaling it up from there. Right. So I think that's super fascinating that a, you know, maybe you were studying something that was a little bit different. You recognize different opportunities to start, you know, focusing on. And then from there, you were able to just move in the direction that made sense and felt right for you. Yeah, and even going off of that, I don't think that necessarily there's anything in college from like an undergrad standpoint, because uh, I know you mentioned that, that like gives you a better chance to succeed post-college. If anything, when I now interview biology majors that want to get into marketing, I, if anything, give them, uh, I find that to be more impressive because of critical thinking that's applied, the work ethic that's applied, over something in, in marketing, you're, you're majoring in college, it gives you no, you know, I mean, both things don't really give you any hands-on experience. The the funny thing is it's like when, you, when you're looking backwards, right? Like when, like you were saying, when I was just a kid in college, I was looking for ways to make some more money, you know, go out, have some fun and like support myself in a way that felt right. It's so funny because looking back, like when I was going to college, trying to pick out a college major and say, oh, this is the right major for everything I want out of my house whole career. It's like, how do you even know what your career is going to be, let alone pick a major that defines it and study it, et cetera. So I think the fact that you obviously gravitated towards these things that were exciting to you, that probably, that meant something. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm doing biology, but I'm dabbling in all these different things. There was clearly some sort of pull that pulled you in the direction. So that's, that's awesome. I think like for entrepreneurship specifically, it's just like the discovery of like the fact that you're seeing progress happening right in front of you for like that first sale, that first internet dollar. And then the next question becomes like, well, how far can I take this? Like this could just keep 
growing and evolving. Whereas like as you're going through college, you don't really see what are going to be the rewards of that. And so it's almost like you just get addicted to seeing the progress and seeing how far you can take it. At least like that was my experience. So. All right. So you're in college, you did the bio thing. You start working on a couple different games, apps, affiliate links, that sort of thing. Why don't you walk me through where are you when you, when you graduate, right? Because I know you mentioned you broke a million dollars in your senior year. Is that right? No, just the, the month of May. The month of May, just in that Obviously, month. Yeah. Got it. So you, so for you, once you were leaving college, it what was never. Too that month? I don't <laughs> so it wasn't even a, a question in your mind if you were going to be working for yourself or taking a traditional job coming out of college. Is that right? By the time I graduated, yeah. So I started that platform May going into my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. I, I started. I was going to the library every every day to study for my DATs while the platform, while we started the platform and I started getting traction, all this stuff. So you could say I, I was getting distracted very often. And um, I would say like one month into studying, I, I like knew, I was like, number one, I was absolutely miserable. I hated the stuff I was studying. I never really wanted to be a dentist anyways, but it was just literally torture. But I was already committed and, and whatnot. So I knew essentially by the time I, I was going to take the test, which was, I think, in August, that I was, didn't want to be a dentist for sure. And I didn't get a good enough score to get me into the right dental school I needed to be in anyways. So that made my decision very easy. And, you know, the platform gained so much success. I, was, I said, you know, I'll, I'll take a year out of college, see what happens. And if things keep going, then I can still go to dental school. I can do whatever. But there's too much of an opportunity right now. And even from financially, it didn't make sense. Like if I'm I, if I'm making you know what a dentist makes yeah. in one month and yeah. maybe three years, like doesn't make sense to go to dental school. So. And I think that's that's obviously it's pretty interesting. And I think what's different probably about your story than some others is that timing that you're talking about. It's like you were coming out of college and you had something that was sustainable that you could latch onto. I know there's several people who are probably coming out of college that don't have that same luxury and are probably trying to figure out, okay, when do I jump out of the plane? Like, when do I pull the parachute? That sort of thing, if they want to set their eyes on entrepreneurship. So it's always fascinating to hear when in the journey, you know, you're you're able to make that decision. So for you, because you had started working earlier in your college career, by the time you graduated, you were already set. You had your own job made for you and you were you were good to go. And since then, you've been working for yourself. Is that right? Yeah. I think also is also dependent on the type of company that you're making, right? It's like you have a tech company. It's a lot harder to get a tech company and at least revenue and profitability wise to that versus it is in something like affiliate marketing or or just a consumer brand, something like that. So I think a lot of it was, but something like that is a lot more valuable, right? I got lucky in the aspect, I think of like the industry I got into and how it, the decision to, it got to a point by the time I graduated where it was a no brainer, but everyone's different. No, I think that's another really important point for anyone that's listening. It's just knowing the type of business or project you're working on and knowing what the outcomes are. So for example, for me, the first business that I started out of college was this business Seated, major restaurant app now um, all throughout the US but it was a venture scale sort of business. And being a first time founder, trying to go and raise a bunch of capital, even though we knew we were onto something, it's not an easy task. Whereas what you're describing is you're like, hey, this isn't a business where, you know, I need to go raise millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, coming out as a bio grad from college. You're like, I'm making the money. 
you know, we're cash flowing so we can start doing all these different things. And you, it's, it's permissionless in the sense that no one, you're not going to anyone convincing them that they need to give you your money. You just have a business, the market saying, Hey, this business is worth something. So you've got something to operate out of, which I think is really important. Did you always know the end goal or like, do you, even when you're looking to get into any project, like, do you now that given like, you know, you've done it multiple times, do you always think about it? Like, how is this going to end? Where do I want to take this before you even started? Or do you just write it and figure it out as you go? Definitely figure it out as I go. Like when I, when I started the platform, it wasn't because I saw the end goal. Mm-hmm. I kind of just saw the opportunity in front of me, which changed it, which, which changed, and I had to adapt. And there's the opportunities once we start. I think it's the same as, as many businesses, but most businesses have to adapt and change. I would say there's very little businesses that are able to stay on like the same course as when they initially start. Mm-hmm. And it could be a fundamental change. It could just be in, in, in the type of customer you're going after type of marketing or many things. But even today, I wouldn't necessarily say like when I start a business, I see, I think about potentially where it can go if things are, you know, go as planned, but keeping in mind that things are going to have to rapidly change so often between now and and the end goal that like, I don't necessarily spend too much time planning for that. Especially in like that discovery phase, like it's it's almost guaranteed that something is going to change. Like either the market you're going after, even the product itself. Yeah, or even the whole landscape of the market you're, you're in. Like things, you know, even with with COVID. Yeah, I mean, you think it's complete industry has just got turned upside down. Many of them. So um, just needs. I would say adaptation. I would say is the most crucial thing I've learned for having success in business. No, I think that's a super important point about adaptation and how markets move. Markets aren't stagnant. So what was a good opportunity in 2013, 2014 is probably already been eaten. And now you have to look at the opportunities that are coming up in front of you now. So talking a little bit about landscape, right? You said you launched your first D2C sort of brand in 2016. What was that brand? What were you selling? What was it like getting started? And what was it like scaling up to you know millions in sales back then? The first brand was a, the the jewelry company, but I won't spend too much time on that just because I, I never really put too much time into it. It was more so just like a little test we were doing, as treating it as like another offer, but wasn't necessarily planning on scaling because I was still focused on the platform at the time. The first brand that I was focused on was the company Goat Case. And my friend in college at the time, Matt, was selling, just drop shipping the product, which was a phone case I can like stick to different things. And... Um, he came, we decided to partner on it because he was gaining some traction. And he knew obviously that I had already had a lot of success and scaled many different offers and products and whatnot. So we had success really early on. Like the first week, we probably, I don't know, I think we did like 200,000 in revenue the first week. And um, we knew we were onto something. I think that Instagram had already grow, grew like 100,000 followers in the first few weeks. So it was a true like viral product. What do you think was about it, whether it was the timing of the product, whether it was about the marketing tools you use, like what, what do you, if you had to like reflect on it, what was it about it that made that product pop? I would say number one was product market fit, obviously, because you can't do that with everything. Number two was, was timing. And then number three was just knowing how to scale. So there was other people selling the same thing, but we, we and content was is the last thing. Content's at the end of the day, the most important thing and how you scale and how you do all these things. But we had an amazing strategy for content and we had a great strategy for scaling. And at first we were focused on Twitter, then we moved to Instagram right when we launched. 
And um, this was pre-algorithm on both platforms. So because I had the relationships with pretty much everyone in the space on Twitter and Instagram through, through the platform I already had told you about, mm-hmm. we were able to get the cheapest rates, buy all the inventory, make sure they don't sell to any of the other competitors selling similar products. So we pretty much blanketed social media with our ads for six months. To give you an idea, on Twitter, we were doing 50 million impressions a day. Wow. And on Instagram, it was about the same. So at the time, you were paying Twitter page owners based on impression, just the same way you pay Facebook. So at the end, it was based on per million impressions. And it was only, I think it was like, no, it was $18 per 100,000. So it was $180 per million, I guess. Maybe it was a little different. Anyways, that's so that, that's what we were doing. And we built a great marketing, a campaign and marketing strategy behind it because we were able to create content for each specific theme. So related to our product. So although it was just a phone case, I could stick to things, recreated content for the beauty pages mm-hmm. and show their followers how it's related to beauty. It did the same thing for sports, for fitness, for outdoor, for car, all these different things. And that's how we were able to scale the campaign and kind of a customized content strategy. So, yeah. So in terms of just to, you know, set contact, context for the listeners in terms of like timing when this is going on, you said- July, 2016. 2016, and when you said pre-algorithm, you mean the algorithm which uh, assigns users different content based on what they like. So it was more like timeline-based. Yeah, it was chronological. Totally chronological. And you had really affordable impressions compared to what you're seeing now. And it was predictable was the main thing. Exactly. Because now it's, you know, a page could get 10,000 impressions or 10,000 impressions. Let's say a page with even a million, two million followers, you can get that, or it can get a million impressions. You have no idea. It's all based on how people interact with it. Exactly. And that's why we were able to be, we were able to scale our campaigns because we were able to get predictable amount of views from these pages. So you basically worked out an equation super early on where you're like, if we put X amount in, we're getting X amount out. Let's have the inventory to scale it. We've clearly demonstrated there's some product market fit and let's rip it. That was it. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's 2016. Okay, now walk me through the next you know, couple months after that. So you've, you've got this flywheel in place, right? And so where, where do things start changing when you say, okay, let's start looking at, you know, at other opportunities to grow and, and, and where, at what point do you, uh, you know, change up your strategy and change up what you're working on? I would say the main thing wasn't a couple months in wasn't even from the marketing standpoint on how do we scale. Mm-hmm. It was more so everything else because we went from literally zero to a hundred in one week. But most people yeah. couldn't fulfill that even yes. if they wanted to exactly. do that. Yeah. Right? So that was the like, biggest <laughs> like, thing we had uh, within one week. I remember we ordered 50,000 phone cases without anywhere to even put them yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We should have gotten a 3PL and we, we thought about doing that, which was definitely the biggest mistake I made. Mm-hmm. And many people told me I should do it, but it seemed so expensive at the time versus what we could potentially do it for and um, decided not to do it, which was an awful mistake. Mm-hmm. But like you said, in, in the first six months, we moved four times. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how much just time that takes mm-hmm. and stress and all this other stuff. So the logistics and fulfillment were a complete shit show. Totally. Complete shit show. So it wasn't because clearly you had the marketing formula set up, but actually once you get to scale, now the challenge is really fulfillment, logistics, operation, operation. building the team. Yeah, all that. That was, that was the hardest part for us in the wow. first year and a half. And when you said you were originally drop shipping this product, right? So um, 
at a certain scale, were they still able able to fulfill at that, or were they were they like, hey, you go figure this out, or what, so what did only, that look? Like? We only drop shipped for like a week after we knew that there was potential to build a real brand behind it. Yeah. That was when we, and that's why we didn't drop ship was because we wanted to brand it, we wanted yeah. to do all that stuff. So and obviously provide a good customer experience because it's you know that's it's scale to do that. Customers aren't going to be happy. So just after a week when we we were gaining so much traction, we decided that we didn't want to drop ship it. That's a pretty interesting kind of play in terms of validating, especially in the D2C space, right? If you're trying to validate product market fit, obviously as things scale up, you want to own your product in-house and you want to do all this. But in the early days, right, the MVP of a product, whether it's something physical, it's an experience, et cetera, you know, maybe for some of the listeners out there, drop shipping is a good option, just like you were saying, just to like validate before you say, this is, you know, this is the hill I'll die on with, with your brand. Yeah, and the other thing for me also was that at the time, like I mentioned, I was doing the, the platform. I only wanted to build a brand because I thought I wanted to build something that could be sustainable. Mm-hmm. I didn't just want another offer that could just make money. Exactly. So drop shipping just wasn't appealing to me for that already because it's like what we were already doing, but then we also have to do all the fulfillment and all that stuff behind it. So I wanted to, my, my goal was to set out to build a brand. And uh, that was another th- big thing why we did it, decided not to, to drop ship. We were only doing it initially just for, for validation. Testing, for, yeah, validation. testing, yeah. That sort of thing. Okay, so after that, right, you realize you're like, okay, to take this beyond where we are, this is going to require massive investments in team and in infrastructure, logistics, supply chain, all that sort of thing. How do you get out? What's the play there? And how long after starting is this? So it took us a year and a half to outsource our fulfillment. Mm-hmm. About, yeah, about that. And that was when we launched our second brand, Perfect Sculpt, which was substantially bigger than GoCase, even. Mm-hmm. And the products were taking up more space because we went from phone cases to bras and mm-hmm. waist trainers and shapewear that are just taking a lot more space. Sure. It was after, you know, we, now we moved into a legitimate warehouse, 8,000 square feet, and had, you know, had, a, had a, like a legitimate kind of fulfillment operation going. And it, we, we just dealt with so much bullshit, employee stealing product, weird stuff going on, like from the security cameras and all this stuff from managing warehouse workers mm-hmm. that you might imagine, just crazy stuff. And that along with just number one, that we weren't doing a great job from an accuracy standpoint on fulfillment, mm-hmm. eventually we were able to, and because we had leverage because of just the volume of our business, we were able to find a 3PL that would pay, because we, we got to the point where now we had substantial costs. You know, we had our warehouse, we had a team, we had all this, we had, you know, even some equipment, stuff like that. So because we had leverage in our volume, we were able to get the 3PL to pay for, the entire move mm-hmm. and to pay for our lease and to be able to buy us out of our lease. So that was how we were able to get out of it. Got it. Got it. So, and and that's, that's really important to know. It's like when you have velocity as a business that gives you obviously leverage, you know, in your negotiations and that sort of thing. But I think it's important to recognize that too, that like you do have the leverage because I feel like people might try to over-optimize before they do have the leverage, like try to over-optimize for the wrong things. And like looking back, even though you wish you would have, you know, done that earlier, I think, you know, doing it while being in a strong position of leverage was probably also a gift in, in disguise. Yeah, Absolutely. And believe me, I, I always tell that to, to so many brands so many times because so many people make that same mistake of keeping fulfillment in-house. And the second I hear that, I'm like, I tell us the exact story. Because it's, it's like, what, what, what's best case? Your brand grows. Best case, your brand grows and now you have to move warehouse and you have yeah. to do everything I just said. And exactly. it just... You can't scale up. Yeah, you can't scale up. So it's like best case scenario, 
you need to you need to get rid of it eventually anyways so and i think the other fascinating thing is like at least from your experience operating in the D2C space, like when you're talking 2016, 2017, that landscape for e-commerce is like very different than it is now, right? Now we're seeing things fragment. There's tools for different specific actions of all the different parts of the customer journey. But back then, you know, you've got a product, you've got a 3PL and, you know, at the time, were you guys building on Shopify? Were you building custom? How were you thinking about it? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, we were on, we were on Shopify day one. But, you know, even all the stuff that we take for granted today, Shopify was nowhere near it is what it is today. And all, the, and all the partners on it, like you mentioned, weren't anywhere near as capable and mature as they are today. And even the landscape, you know, the, the Clavio at the time was a startup, $10 billion company today. Exactly. So it was a bunch of kind of like startups just getting started. And obviously their, their tools just weren't as mature as they are today. But it also provided a lot more opportunity because there weren't as many players in the space, competition. Yeah. So costs for everything were cheaper. Totally. And, and I think that's what's so fascinating about the Shopify ecosystem today is that you do have all these players coming in and owning a different part of the stack, whether it's stuff on you know the return side, the support side, the fulfillment side, the marketing side, as you mentioned, Klaviyo, Shopify, and all these brands are starting to build out these stacks where you can just plug and play, whether it's, I want referrals, okay, there's a service for that. I want, you know, returns, okay, there's a service for that. Um, whereas, you know, back when you said you were building, it was a very nascent sort of ecosystem. So I think, you know, while there's, while you had the opportunity and the luxury of being able to say, oh, there's not as much competition so we can kind of outpace everyone. I think the brands that are really taking advantage and know how to use and integrate all those tools are the ones that are gonna be able to outcompete the rest in yeah. today's landscape. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. Were you selling on Amazon then? And what do you have to say to the people that are listening to this and are like, or I could just like sell on Amazon and not worry about any of that? So we always dabbled a tiny bit into Amazon. I never gave it a ton of mental bandwidth for myself to figure it out, so to speak. And I would say that like looking back that maybe I regret that. We always had so much success with what we had in front of us. And there was always moving, we had to change and adapt, like all this stuff that you have to do to operate a business day to day. Amazon is like a completely separate beast itself. So it's like to stop what I'm doing, to just learn it myself, it was kind of seemed like an arduous task versus where we were at the skill we were at, might as well just hire someone to figure it out. So we never put a ton of focus into that. I think looking back, it might have been a mistake, but it also just wasn't our business model, right? Like we were trying to build brands, not just kind of like sell forks or dishes or whatever. But the MA, it seems like activity in the Amazon space is a lot more active. Like now there's open store for Shopify. There's, but there's, you know, Thrasios that are raising billions of dollars to just acquire brands. So I think that it's a lot easier to get your company acquire on Amazon right now that is for Shopify. And it's also typically better multiples before you get into the, into the real scale, but for the typical, just, you know, person selling stuff. So to answer your question, I, I, we never really became Amazon experts. We were always focused on, on Shopify brand. 
And running a Shopify brand, I think, is just a lot harder because it's the creative portion that yeah. is the difficult part and it's just not there on Amazon. How many hours a week were you working at that time when you were like having to like change your 3PL? Like, Oh man, I was, work I was working a lot. I was stressed out. I was like 65 pounds heavier than I am now. Oh my God. <laughs> Maybe 70 pounds, I'm not kidding. Eating pasta every day. I, w I was really stressed out. Yeah, yeah. It was stressful. A lot of it was from that warehouse. That's something that like resonates with me and I'm sure a whole bunch of entrepreneurs is like the first time around when you're building something for the first time, it all falls on you. Like this, you, because you've never really worked in that environment. So you don't even know really what the limits of stress are in your work. Cause you just work and you just do everything and you ride it to the limit. Um, that can obviously be a little bit unhealthy, but I think I'm sure, I don't know how you feel about it now, but like having gone through that, does that help set a better barometer for your work today and like yeah absolutely and i think the most important thing from it is that to build a great company it's at least at the time i thought like i had to have my fingerprint so to speak on everything i had to do i had to manage everyone i had to tell everyone to do anything there are extensions of me that's not the right you know today i realize that's that's not the right way to do things you build to build a company that's scaling as fast and efficient you need to find great people that can do that stuff. Mm -hmm. And if that trust isn't there, then you can't build a real company. So now that that's how I approach things and trusting my leaders and managers in the company and stuff like that, who are able to bring the company tons of value that's not just reliant on me. That's so important. It's, it's, it's really important to have a really good team around you. But by the same token, I think what you kind of said about having gone through that experience yourself and like been in the driver's seat of all those different functionalities. Like you've known what it is like to like try to scale up a warehouse on your own. You've known what it's like to sit in all these different seats. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, when you go to bring on a team that you can trust, having experience, at least in, in my perspective, and I'm not sure if you guys feel the same way, but having experience where you, not to say you're, you need to be the best in the world at everything, but having a little bit of experience where you've dabbled in these other things and you understand how parts of the business connect, it enables you to hire the right teammates who you can trust and take where, where you are and your knowledge and just take it up to the next level. Cause they yeah, because like with the hustle culture, like, you know, it, that's in the beginning, like the grind hustle, that's all fine. You have to do it in the beginning, but like mastery is at a point where you're like not having to yeah. grind at that point because mastery, you know, you've figured out your entire process, you know who to hire for each position and, and it doesn't depend on you anymore. And so mastery should be effortless rather so than like grinding and hustling 24 seven and eating, you know, like stressing the fuck out. One quick question that I had, and then we'll keep going if we circle back to Amazon, right? Cause I know a lot of early stage D2C brands, one thing that they're evaluating is, okay, so they've set up Shopify and they know they should be selling direct to their consumers. They start getting some orders coming in and then they start thinking about Amazon. So I know you guys didn't specialize in Amazon um, yourselves, but for a lot of the brands that you work with now, is that something that they're focused on? Do you advise them in any which way or do you kind of just you know bring them in and, and kind of let them do what they're already doing? Yeah, so I would say for almost every brand, the overwhelming majority of brands should be on Amazon. And you should be on every marketplace you should be, you, you can get on. Why? Because traffic is so expensive today that unless you're, you are wherever, wherever your customer is, it's really, it's, it's now harder more than ever to generate profit. So customers simply go from Facebook ads to Amazon to buy products today. That, that's what happens. 
that's not questionable at this point. And if you're not there, then your competitors are there. And if your competitors are there, then they're, you know, they're winning off your traffic and they're, and they're driving revenue and, and getting your customers. So for that reason alone, to my opinion, you should be on every marketplace that you, you can get on just for the fact that you're, that's where your customers are, that's where your customers are buying. If you're gaining traction there, then you know how the algorithms work, you're higher up in the rankings, now you get new customers, and again, it become a great revenue stream. And I think that's a really great way to look at it because when you're thinking of it in terms of like your distribution, right? Like Amazon, if you're selling on Amazon, you may not have to say, hey, I have to build my whole business on Amazon, but having that as one arm of the business and saying, hey, let me use this opportunity to attract sellers. And you could even include stuff whether it's in your packaging or et cetera, to try to own them. And maybe you try to get that next sale through your direct channel or something like that. But as as far as a customer acquisition channel and getting traffic, I think that's a really good point. And thinking of it in that lens and not necessarily, again, for the early stage entrepreneur, maybe they're looking at the numbers and the figures and being like, hey, this is like really expensive for me, for me to sell here. But if you look at it in a more holistic sense, maybe it does make sense. The only, and I mentioned before, the like majority of times, the only times I now say, where a brand might want to reconsider that mm -hmm. is when they're continuity-based, they're subscription-based. Mm -hmm. Because there can be some cannibalizing going on where you know if you're offering only subscription on your website, but now they're going to Amazon to buy that. Now that affects the actual business plan for the brand. And that's when you might want to reconsider that. So we had a, we had a brand that I fought back on. I said, you should get on Amazon. They said, no, we're going to do subscription only. We want to do it on Shopify. And just seeing the success of them just on their Shopify store because they're subscription only yeah. and just compounding every month, I definitely do think that not going on Amazon strategically was the right move. So that's when I would say the only time is, is to reconsider if you're doing something like that. That makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, I think subscription, that's another interesting thing that we can chat about because I know a lot of uh, a lot of different types of companies in the D2C space, um, you're seeing subscription offerings. It's a really cool way to design an experience around a subscription product because again, you know, from the business perspective, it makes sense, but also the consumer can have something delivered to their door every month. And if, you know, if it's in the nutrition space, if it's like a drink or a CPG sort of product and that sort of thing, it's, you know, one, it's an amazing way for them to repeat recurring revenue and boost LTV. But for the customer, it's also an amazing experience as well. And they can get the benefits out of, you know, bringing something into their routine for longer and longer. So, you know, what type of subscription brands, you know, have you worked with and what tools do you see them using? Are they on, you know, a recharge? Are they on a recurly? Any, anything like that? Anything you advise them with in that sense? Yeah. So there's tons of different subscription brands that we work with. Recharge, I would say right now is obviously they're the biggest by far and they're what we recommend people use at this point. It's also great that they're, they, they finally have that integration with, with Shopify where it's, you can also just use the Shopify checkout now. But in my opinion today, if I'm launching a brand and I'm, or I'm thinking about launching a brand, if it doesn't have a focus on subscription, I'm not even considering launching it. Mm -hmm. Because just like I've touched upon before, it is now harder than ever to acquire customers profitably. Mm -hmm. And unless you have a really good metric for LTV and retention of your customers, it's just so hard to build a brand today. Pre-iOS 14, it was extremely easy. You could, you could for any, almost any type of stuff, if you had a good idea of what you're doing from an ad standpoint and creative and influencer, you could make it work and you typically scale it pretty quickly. But with how tricky it's become since iOS 14, it's net once again now made it harder than ever 
It's the brands that are able to focus on subscription that are thriving more than ever because typically their LTV is higher, they're compounding every month, and they don't need to focus on you know day-to-day. We have to acquire more customers at scale because eventually that, that dries up. And for many brands, it's even what I've seen, you know, they have the huge spikes. They go from zero to 20 million in revenue in a year or two years. But to do that year three, four, five, six, you can only do that if you, number one, if your customers continue coming back or you just continue expanding the product line. But then it's like, is that even a brand at that point? You're just launching products. Exactly. It's really the brands that are subscription focused that are the, the brands that are going to win over time. And the other thing on that is that now people know that and they try to put everything on subscription. And a lot of times that just doesn't work, right? It's like deodorant. I've seen people try subscription. It's like, I've been using the same deodorant for like six months. The thing like never runs out. You know, you can say there's many things that go along with that. But what I find is it's products that solve a real problem that people make sure to put in their routine. That is what works on subscription. No, I think that's a really great vantage point to take in terms of subscription. You can't just create a subscription just for the sake of it and let's slap a subscription on, you know, headphones. Like, no, <laughs> I bought a pair. I'm, I'm good for now. So thinking about subscription and, and also the product and the product experience that lines up with subscription. On the flip coin, there are going to be certain products that aren't that don't lend themselves to the subscription. So if you are, you need to know that your cogs need to be down, like, like you're saying, even things like the size of the product, the storage, how you ship it, how much it costs to ship all that, if you have a really good equation lined up on that side of the ball, you can probably still make it. But if you're if you're not, it's something to consider. If you're at the early stages, oh, maybe I think about something, a different type of subscription yeah. offering that I can create. I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just a lot harder. And I'm more so not, I'm not thinking the first two years of the business. It's more so going, once again, year three, four, five, six. And it's just so hard from what I've seen once brands get to that, like, inflection point and the inflection point is different for many brands, but to just, cause if you're not sustaining growth every year, mm-hmm. your brand isn't worth anything, exactly. relatively speaking, or your valuation is going to get really, really hurt. So it's just to continue doing that over time, especially at scale nowadays is so freaking hard unless your customers are returning and that's how brands compound. So that's kind of like what I've seen, at least from the agency side. I think for forecasting, it like helps so much. Forecasting inventory, like not just the revenue you're going to get, but for, you, you forecast your revenue, you forecast your inventory, which means you forecast your cash flow. And like you, you run such a better and more efficient business. And if you wanted to get aggressive, now you can even burn capital because you have yeah. an LTV that you can predict on those customers. It's the same reason why, you know, software the companies right. get such a great multiple is because it's it's predictable and, and they grow because people are on subscription. Exactly. Even same thing with an agency, you know, we're, we're, our customers are on subscription, we're able to grow, we're able to compound. If you're just acquiring, that, if you rely on acquiring new customers, it just, it's tough. Especially again, and going back to what we're saying about like market dynamics and like what's changed, you said iOS 14, you have a way more competitive product landscape. Everyone in the world can spin up a Shopify store and compete in a similar space. So it's not just the fact that good products can't win. It's also the fact that in the current landscape and as things are with the way customers are currently acquired to launch a business where you're just thinking about one specific product, it's maybe a harder road ahead. Yeah. And CPMs aren't getting cheaper. I don't think ever because, you know, social media, which everyone's on, I think the rate at which advertisers are going to continue to adopt online marketing is going to increase the rate at which users are going to, new users are going to get on social media. So CPMs get continue to get more expensive. 
and costs to acquire customers keep will will keep going up. So once again, it just goes back to LTV and trying to retain your customers. That's something that we're seeing too. It's like a lot of the companies that we talk to in the D2C space, they're also, you know, whether it's this quarter or next quarter, they're, they're either, you know, they have a subscription component or they're planning on rolling out a subscription component. I know even a lot of the, there's different software providers in the D2C space that are, you know, planning for, uh, you know, giving their subscription offerings and their software solutions to manage them. So it's definitely going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on and just in terms of trends and where we see things going. So what do you suggest to people that might be struggling with their unit economics, like specifically with customer acquisition costs? Like, you know, should they, you know, I'm sure you mentioned content earlier, like, you know, better and better content could improve your customer acquisition costs. Maybe you could do something on the on the supply side, on the inventory side that you're not doing. Or like, at which point do you say, like, this is just a business about unit economics and, and you know, the market is too hot and you're, you're not going to improve your customer acquisition costs? I always say it's like, so, I mean, some people have like 50% margins on a product. That's why I'm like, you know, you, you should you should give up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roughly, I, I tell brands like it would be ideal to have at least 75% margins on a product. If you have under that, it just becomes really tough because, you know, it's like you need just from a marketing standpoint, let's, let's say advertising is 50% of your expenses, which today a lot of brands are in that in that bucket or even more. Like I said, you only have 50% margins on the product. Well, now you have zero for everything else. You can't even hire employees. Mm-hmm. Can't hire, even hire, you can't manage, you know, pay for software. You can't do, you can't invest in influ- like influencer content. So unless you have a good enough margin, like you mentioned, it's tough to really invest in a lot of things you need day to day. So like roughly that's what I say, because then a lot of the numbers start backing out. The other thing is, yeah, have, having a good content strategy is the most important thing. And I think influencer marketing Leveraging that kind of goes hand in hand with that, especially when it comes to building a brand, because a lot of time brands that have brand equity is from the influencers are working with, from the celebrities are working with, because that's how people kind of remember a brand. You know, it's like Nike, like you remember because Michael Jordan, it's like, oh, it's that. A lot of times you don't say, oh, I, I love this brand because of their ads I see on, on Facebook. It might acquire the customer, but unless you kind of are getting the likeness from a lot of people along the way, I think it's tough to have a lot of that brand equity that a lot of a lot of people I uh, aspire to have. So that's kind of like my two cents on that. Yeah, I think that's super true in terms of content, being able to put a face to the product and not just having a product that lives by itself. It's super important. One other th- question that I'd have about the agency, and I'm sure the listeners are curious about. So who's the typical, um, you know, subscriber or, you know, who's your typical client that you work with and, how many brands are you working with now and what, and what are the plans for, for the next you know year and so on? So we have around 100 clients under management right now, typically in the, in the one to $20 million a year revenue range. Mm-hmm. We have some clients that are under that or over that. We're now starting to work a lot more with brands, especially in the last two years, that are the larger kind of more retail heavy clients that might be doing, you know, tens, even hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but never focused on their digital strategy. So we're starting to see a lot, a lot of that now and develop all that for them. Once again, that's that's where us being full service really comes into play because we're able to do everything from launch their website to the content for their website to the content for ads to everything. The, and then we also, because we our, our background and, and focus was on launching brands from scratch, 
we have a really good playbook for that as well. We also have launched a number of brands from scratch and have had a lot of success in that as well. But typically that, that's where we lie is in that one to 20 million a year range. Who are the types of people at these brands that you're talking to? Are you working with mostly founders? Is it like a company that's grown up and it's like the you know head of marketing or head of growth hits you up or head of e-commerce? Like who, who's the, the buyer and, and what does that kind of look like? A lot of the things that you just mentioned it's really a mixed bag. I would say there isn't like a, a specific thing. It's really, I would say, equally distributed from a company where we're working with, like you said, their head of growth or head of marketing, whatever, to we have plenty of founders that we're still working with. And even from these larger brands, we're still working with, with, with the founder, even if they might have a marketing team to some even more like corporate level companies like, like I was just mentioning. So I wouldn't say there's a specific profile on that front from where, where the company's at. It's definitely still a mixed bag. Yeah, so it's basically anyone in the company who's thinking about thinking about growth, thinking about getting their product in front of more eyeballs, thinking about stuff like retention and how do we get more users and how do we build more brand equity. That could be a multitude of people within the organization, but they're coming to you and then you guys are kind of figuring out their prescription plan, what services they need. And I think an, another important point that you made was just in the beginning was that you know, maybe you start with one use case. And then as soon as you start working with that person, they're probably like, Hey, I want to solve this problem. I want to solve that problem. And by keeping that workflow in your in-house, you're able to kind of grow with them and grow with exactly. their needs. Yeah. Cause brands mature and what they need matures as well. That's where we came about, you know, we went from just doing Facebook ads, doing Facebook and Google, doing Facebook, Google, YouTube, to then understanding clients need content, launching our studio, being able to have web design in-house and funnel design and all that stuff. So that's how like we evolved based on our clients' needs and patterns and trends that we've seen. So, yeah. Awesome. And then personally, what's new for, for Snow Agency? And uh, you guys are based in Miami, is that right? So me and my brother, who's my, my co-founder, were both from New Jersey, born and raised. Our office, we still have our office there in Edgewater, New Jersey. I moved in February to Miami. He moved in July. And after he moved, we decided that we're going to get an office. So we encouraged other employees, if they wanted to come, they would have a home at, at the office, et cetera. So we had like 10 to 15 employees move down since that. We also have a creative studio in New Jersey, Princeton. But I love Miami. I, I knew there would be a big opportunity here from just all the different brands that are moving here. And also just... I've love it here as well it's so early like there's still like there still isn't that face where like the brands or like the e-commerce brand dtc brands aren't starting yet to be born here i mean there's probably a few but mm -hmm. there's not that boom you know i was in austin like austin had a huge cpg yeah. boom i feel like that's no bound community. to happen there's here. no community in miami definitely like you said austin there's a ton right but it's bound to happen yeah here. yeah Cool. Well, anyway, I wanted to, to thank you for, for joining us today on, on the pod. I think we covered a lot of, you know, really informative stuff, not just for how you got from where you were to launching an agency, but also a lot of really thoughtful insights for different brands as they're going through different stages. Where can listeners, you know, where can they find you online? Uh, how can they get in contact? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am Dan Snow. Email Dan at the Snow Agency. My Instagram is dapper, D-A-P-P-E-R. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, guys.